Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, where it's our goal to help you become the best financial advisor possible and drive the positive evolution of financial advice. Hub24 is an ASX-listed company with over $15 billion funds under management and one of the fastest-growing platforms in the market. Neither a bank nor part of a bank, Hub24 focuses entirely on connecting advisors to a broad range of investment solutions for their clients. Discover why other advisors think Hub24 are the best in the market and access the benefits of choice and efficiency for you and your clients with their market-leaning managed portfolio solution. To find out more, visit hub24.com.au. G'day, g'day. How's it going? What do you know? Striker like Clayton here from XY Advisor. Sitting across the table from me is Sean Green. What's happening? Good morning. Not too much, mate. Feeling good? Mate, it's uh, it's good to have you here. We've had you on once before, but you were playing sort of second fiddle to that <laughs> monster of a man, Adrian Patty. So, figured yeah. we'd get you on here. I'm feeling a bit more familiar with the environment now. <laughs> exactly. Um, mate, so, uh, we famously met but didn't meet. At Dixon Advisory, where I can remember you and you can't remember me, and then uh, and then you joined, uh, I think it was Charter or something, right? Yeah, briefed into BT and BT, then landed in Charter AMP World for the last seven and a half years. Yeah, yeah, and um, and then you sort of have uh, branched off into your own thing, and we'll get to all of that. The thing that I wanted to sort of talk to you about immediately. Spending a bit of time at Charter, Charter was a really interesting dealer group, right? Because it was technically aligned, or more than technically aligned, definitely was aligned, but there was certainly a a large amount of, what's the word to use uh, when you've got your own autonomy for the practices? So, it was kind of like this half-half. Is it still like that? And what were your feelings at the time working in Charter? Yeah, look, you had um, the AXA business. I think they merged AXA, FP, and Charter together. That network experienced probably the most change coming into the AMP world. Obviously, after the takeover, um, it was a it was a more open business model. Um, it had a different community and different style of advisors. But ultimately, yeah, they they merged into the AMP framework, um, and thus you know had a different structure to their business than what the AMP, FP and Hillross businesses had. Yeah. And and with that experience, I think it's kind of cool because you'd be getting from the advisors, you know, a certain amount of desire for the licensee to stay completely out of it. And then from the mothership, Big Blue, saying, actually, we want to have a play a role in that. Um, what were you finding in terms of advisors wanting support and advisors wanting to be left alone? Yeah, you know, the, the, the magic is in the middle, right? So the licensee is there to provide core services. They're there to provide a compliance framework that hopefully, you know, keeps everybody safe and out of trouble um, and doesn't create too much inefficiency in that space as well. Um, certainly a lot of the majors are providing business coaching and M&A support and other things like that. But I think from the practices standpoint, they want flexibility to run their business and pre- present their business to their clients in, in with as much flexibility as possible. And they want a partner that can can both provide services to them of value, but also not tie them up in knots and actually um, not make it difficult for them to um, transact and execute on acquisitions, which is a big space where I think there's some challenges in the institutional world. Um, yeah, so it's really getting that nice flex of how I engage my clients and how I run my business, 
comfort around the compliance regime and then operationally as a business, are they easy for me to deal with as I'm growing my business, changing my business, selling my business, whatever it might be. Um, and in the AMP world, just given all of the buyback arrangements and bowler structures, you know, that, that's been more of a challenge for them of recent times of how they're actually managing that centrally without creating um, challenges for the practices as they're trying to innovate and adapt in the market today. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting if you were to break sort of the market into large and aligned um, sort of, you know, in, formally independent but now private but you know, <clears throat> not just sole practice. And there's sort of a couple of different segmentations of private. You've got sort of that 100-plus practice, um, you know, that 100 to say 50, 50 to say 20, and then probably 20 to 5, and then mm. under 5, and then sole practice. So with full respect that they, they definitely uh, have uh, <coughs> different challenges amongst them, but I can see an argument for and against all of these different ones. So the argument for, say, being a part of a, a huge alliance um, is the fact that they're probably the only ones with a bank account that can pay uh, when and if things go wrong. Um, mm. And so one of the interesting things that we saw in the UK was they had this, you know, a handful of years ago, um, basically it forced all of the advisors into what we would call an aligned environment simply because the risk of existing outside of that was too great because um, – and then obvi- the, there's obvious downsides to being in, in, in aligned uh, advice. And then you've got um, sort of that private but larger style of private. Um, the advantage there is you, you're private, you're seen as independent, which is an excellent, uh, an excellent thing. But then, like, what happens if your next door neighbor or down the road, someone in your license goes on an absolute furphy and, and you know, uh, costs the licensee a bunch of money? Is that going to bankrupt your license, right? So, that's... Can affect anybody in that Yeah, in that that's a, it's a huge thing because at least in the bigger ones, they've got the bank account to pay for it and these smaller ones, they probably don't. Um, and then all the way down to sole practitioner, right? So you can sort of offset a large part of your risk by just saying, hey, you know, at least I'm not going to do this. At least, you know, uh, I can control any sort of uh, bad outcomes in that sense. But then are you getting the best advice when it comes to, uh, you know, compliance and auditing? And are you sort of creating for yourself additional problems? Um, it's, it's really interesting in terms of the licensee market in that they all have a positive and they all have a negative um, I don't know, particularly know where to start, um, but what is what's your view on where people, where advisors, because obviously you're in, intimately involved in advice. Um, you only just recently left AMP, um, and what are you seeing in terms of where advisors are looking and want to be, and risk mitigating, and with mm. all that in mind, what are you seeing in the market? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the trends that are going on in the market, you've got this kind of waterfall effect from the top down. So from the big players, I think they've shrunk to about 25% uh, 
of the industry now from 40 plus in the past. So that's significant. But you're seeing this waterfall down through the layers. I think we spoke with Synchron the other day that had something like 100 come in and 100 go out or something like that. Um, so that's even happening within their business in the mid-tier. Um, at the smaller end of town, you've got a, a number of smaller players that are rapidly growing as they're dropping down out of the mid-tier into even you know, the 50, 100 type groups that's sitting down there. Um, you've got at the very bottom, you've got practices that are self-licensed or in smaller groups coming up into the mid-tier for exactly the reason you said, concern around um, compliance risk and what does it mean if something goes wrong. Uh, I think at the top end of town, when you look at the guys coming out of the major institutions, they've been in this um, arguably overbearing compliance environment for some time where it's created a lot of inefficiencies for them and that might be part of the reason why they're moving. Maybe it's part of those more um, business issues that I'd already spoke to previously, but as they're coming down into into um, smaller players, I think they're, they're kind of feeling exposed because they've been wrapped up in cotton wool for so long in how they do things to make sure um, that they stay out of trouble and now they've they don't really have that same structure around them. So um, it's definitely a major consideration for practices to consider in terms of how good are their processes and how comfortable are they with their own compliance, um, who, who are in these groups and how exposed might their risk be to others that are in that group, um, and how, how overbearing is that compliance requirement and what does that actually mean to the efficiencies in the business of of the core function of delivering advice to their clients. And, and and might that also create then implications to the client experience depending on, you know, time delays or other things that might naturally fall into that. So there's a lot going on and there's definitely a lot to be considered as people are moving. But, you know, you look at some of the advisor ratings data and the flux around the industry is pretty dramatic at the moment. So there's a lot happening. Yeah, 100%. There, it's more than... Um there's more than just a small amount, that's for sure. Um, in terms of being at AMP, right? So you just recently left AMP. <coughs> um, I there's a couple of interesting facts I've sort of stumbled upon recently, which I wouldn't mind get, getting your opinion on. Um, there was about a thousand give or take uh, practices up until Ferrari and the team said, "Hey, we're scrapping Bowler." Or, you know, as it was known. Um, and 200, I found out recently, it's only about 200 practices that were told to get out, mm. go, you know, um, and offered uh, without learning any of the finer details from what I could tell in the industry. It was a little bit severe terms compared to what they'd sort of signed up to. Um, and I kind of looked at that and, you know, I've interviewed Neil, uh, you know, Neil, um, and I think they've probably got a good chance of winning this, um, this class action. Has it launched yet? I, I, I think it has. Okay. Yeah, I think it has. Um, but, you know, it's going to take years to, to, to go through. But uh, it was also said to me the other day, so you take that sort of data point where it's only about 20% of the practices that were asked to leave. Um, and then the other data point being that, as I mentioned earlier, UK had a lot of advisors go back to the aligned space and it was sort of put to me that potentially the whole reason that AMP is even attempting to stay 
alive as a company is this idea that the compliance will be so overbearing that it will force advisors back into the aligned space. Um, does, have you heard of any of these points before or does that, any of that sort of ring true? Look, I, I don't think that I would say that that was driving their decision-making. Um, that's for sure. So I guess if I start with your point um, around AMP, I'm not sure the exact numbers. I think there was around 900 businesses. I know that there was a portion that were essentially um, signaled that their time was up. Um, there was another portion, I believe, that were suggested that they had the option to either merge in with another business in the network or exit as well. So there was a few different scenarios. I wasn't close to the detail. Um, but ultimately, when they looked at their business, I think it came down to um, the profitability of serving their client, being the practice, so who was their target market, so to speak, um, and obviously the risk the risk lever as well. And, and I imagine you don't have to be... Um, a rocket scientist to figure out that the smaller, less sophisticated practices are going to be more costly on your services that you're delivering. Um, they're delivering res- less revenue to you and typically they're carrying more risk. So just it's a pretty simple um, decision that it's the tail that you're going to look to trim off. Um, how they went about that and where they drew the line, obviously they did a whole bunch of analysis on and, and made some pretty aggressive calls. Um but yeah, I think I think they really needed to make hard decisions given the state of where their business was in at that time. Yeah, I think one of the things is pretty surprising um, that most advisors don't realize is that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's it's over a third of all advice is considered is is flagged in some way as being uh, non-compliant. Is that correct? I think the numbers is, I think consistently for the last few years, it's been about 70% of files are failing bid on at least one measure. Oh, oh so not 30%, it's the other way around. It's 70%. 70% are failing on at least one measure. Now, importantly, that doesn't mean that the advice is bad or that the client's in a worse position. It's literally the expectations that are on an advisor these days to satisfy, satisfy in the file that the appropriate level of conversation and investigation was had with the client and the documentation of the journey through the construction of the advice is appropriate and that the decisions being made within the practice around that advice were appropriate and then that the document is appropriate at the other end of that and all the things that are expected in the file when someone comes back to look at it and having no idea of what went on with that client that they can reconstruct it all and that it's ticked all the boxes that... Yeah, seventy percent are failing on at least one measure. So that's just just that's fact of what's really been pushed in here yeah. um, post royal commission. Um, obviously, the changes hit the industry a, a long way before that, but really the microscopes on making sure this is hit at a level that was never focused on before. Yeah, which which goes to the point is is it reasonable? I get, I guess. No one's arguing with the outcome, what's trying to be achieved. But, I mean, if if uh, 90% of heart surgeries were failing in at least one uh, one place, there would be an absolute, <laughs> Interesting be an absolute yeah. sort of overhaul of the system. Totally. So is it is it a case of, you know, compliance has gone too far with what they're trying to solve or is it a case that, you know, it's, advisors just 
are, are saying, look, uh, I'm doing what you want. You, I'm just not doing in the exact way that you want it. Mm-hmm. Is it more that or is it just simply advisors don't know? Look, you know, off the back of the Royal Commission, you've got the, you've had the microscope of the Royal Commission, you've had the media, you've had the political element all playing out. So there's no question that the intent of what they're trying to achieve is good. Um, but the, uh, are they going too far? I think it's making the industry quite unpractical. I think a lot of businesses are struggling with profitability at the moment. Um, a lot of people are naturally leaving the industry. We're seeing that as well. Um, so they've definitely gone really hard on the, the hard compliance requirements, which isn't always the best way to solve problems. There's unintended consequences of that. But the reality is, you know, the, the rules are the rules, and this is what's come through. Um, the in- industry needs to adapt in processes. Um, technology is going to be a big answer to that. So there's a number of ways that businesses can help to address some of those gaps. You've got all the reg tech players. Um, you've got solutions on the front end, obviously, like Advice Revolution, um, helping advisors to capture data more completely, capture those conversations more completely, address that 50% of bid compliance risk that sits at the front end, typically. What do you mean by 50% of the bid risk? Uh, bid risk. The bid risk exists. Okay. It's a very difficult yeah, yeah. bunch of words to say on the front end. What do you mean by that? Okay, so when you look at the top five issues that ASIC are focused on, you've got things like goal framing, scoping, file noting, better position statement, um, and I think the uh, appropriateness of product recommendations around research that was completed and alternatives that were considered, I think. All of that area encompasses 50% of the bid failure across the industry. And so ASIC have focused quite heavily on that space. The vast majority of that stuff's happening right up the front end of the advice process. And in many cases, given 80 plus percent of the industry is still rolling a paper fact find, happening outside of systems and outside of any standardization or control. You know, in, in our journey and in, in wanting to kick off the practice that we spoke about last time we we're here, um, and ending up here, we, as we were sort of building out the model, we just, everything just kept pointing back to the front end in terms of the compliance requirements, in terms of where you were actually going to obtain your efficiency gains. Um, and yeah, when you look at ASIC's focus on that space across the industry, it really highlights how critical that front end of the advice process is. Um, like any complex production, process and and i've come from a manufacturing background so i've always looked at the service proposition in a a manufacturing sense is the more complex the situation is the more important the inputs are to that process to get it right so yeah it's 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 a it's a minefield and and asics working and, and focused on those five areas because that's they can solve those five things it's going to give them the biggest possible uplift what's the other 50 percent of the problems Oh, it's a whole bunch of other things in terms of disclosures that might have been provided or anything else in the file. But um, all those other things downstream, much easier to checklist right, or process map to control. Yes. That front-end conversation around how were these conversations had, how did you capture the goals with the client, how did you ensure the advice was going to put them in a better position, all of that front-end space is actually the more complex and challenging space and again exposed to 50 percent of that risk would it make more sense to simply uh record every meeting and record the 
the uh, you know like yourself as you're you know figuring out the strategy and writing things down would it be worth just recording everything to ensure everything was recorded because if everything was recorded then how would they say something's not recorded yeah well it's two things it's one it's documenting what's happened or, or recording and plenty of advisors record their meetings right totally. you know that that's the meeting part yes but it's documenting the conversations that i had and that also exposes the conversations that weren't had right so it's not just about having it on the file it's like was it explored appropriately enough on the front end um, and then what was done with that information that worked through to the recommendation and and having that kind of breadcrumbs um, that can be reconstructed reconstructed to make sure enough was explored and enough was considered um, not just what was done do you think um, do you think asic are kind of looking at this and going each piece of advice should be truly unique do you think they do you think they're looking at it like that or do you think they're looking at it uh, in terms of we accept that you, okay for, let, let's let's change the topic for example you've got sort of these boutique customized houses that you can get built or you can go to you know some construction company that punches out the same house right um because people a want a house and therefore they can build a house and they you know there's small tailoring but essentially their their ability to build um, at, at scale and many of them allows them to reduce the cost. Do you think, do you think ASIC's kind of looking at this and going, well, every piece of advice needs to be a completely unique boutique house or we're happy to get one of these companies that produce a lot of very similar piece of pieces of advice? Mm. I'll preface this with I'm not a compliance expert. Sure. Um, but the way I perceive it is, it's okay if you provide a very advice in a very um, niche space and uh, consistently to your clients on the basis that you're filtering out clients on the front end that don't actually fit that solution. So as long as you're not stuffing every client that walks through your door into the same solution, you're actually filtering who fits this model and I'm making sure they're the ones that are going through and things are done appropriately. I think that's fine. Now, as we both know, in the history in this industry, and probably still some today and some into the future, that's not how it always operates. People, there's certainly businesses that are pushing too many people down the model that they have chosen rather than filtering that out at the funnel. Um, so there's that issue. You know, there's, there's more and more challenges, I think, with providing scoped advice um, in a compliant manner because of the requirements on the advisor to explore and understand the client's circumstances, that naturally can kick up dust and make it difficult for you to just do um, a certain type of advice. Um, well, what about what about if you want to spend your time providing the advice? Like let's say if I was the advisor, you're my client, and you give me a list of, say, 10 goals, um, why is it necessary for me to address all of those goals in one document? Surely it, it, some of this would be, hey, I'm going to handle these handful of things in the first year, these things in the second year, and so on. Yeah, no, totally. You can absolutely do that. So, um, again, it's how that's documented and managed to make sure it's done appropriately. I know some advisors who even do quite holistic or absolutely holistic advice, they still have a kind of a, a process of what are the first things they're addressing with their clients, second, third, fourth, 
to actually bring them into the model. So although it's holistic, this is kind of the entry path that they deliver. Um, and that centers around how they manage their offer. So there's a number of different ways you can do it, but um, whatever way you're approaching this, there's a much greater lens on how you're catering for it um, and how you're filtering out if appropriate um, and how you're documenting everything to support this. So businesses are really having to think about what it is that they're running with their model and which parts that they need to make sure that they're catering for in every client file. And to be able to show, I know that the licensees are all looking for kind of lateral reporting that shows if an advisor is just delivering the same strategy to every single client every single time, that's that's not a great, that, that's highlighting a risk from a compliance standpoint at the license level. Yeah. I wonder if, you know, if the, if the license was removed, right? So if there's no such thing as licensing beyond being self-licensed uh, and APLs were removed, right? I wonder if there would be a need for any of this uh, extremely overburdensome compliance regime. So if I think about why all this has been brought in, it's ultimately so that everyone would love to exist it's it's uh someone walks into an advisor and they go this is the this is what i need and the advisor goes actually it's not for i I don't deal with that but here's my mate over here now of course you can't get paid for that referral but they they go to the next advisor who's the best person to handle their situation they get a piece of advice and all that's received is uh, income from the client in terms of uh, fees and they're not receiving any money from any product. I, I can kind of picture that would be kind of where ASIC wants everything to go. Um, but there's so many layers of different sort of rules and regulations that, mm. that advisors have to fit in that allows not the advisor but different stakeholders to earn revenue, which in turn then create new burdens for the individual advisor, um, which just seems a little bit, I don't know, overly simplistic, I guess would be my, my view of it. If, if I'm looking at it from a regulatory point of view, if I know what outcome I'm trying to achieve, then I don't necessarily have to solve it with uh, tick boxes. Like that's kind of the way that I would view it would be, well, what, what is, what's getting in the road? What part of the value chain is causing these problems? Is it always the advisor that's causing the problem or is it the advisor environment that they work within causing a problem? Um, and sort of a pretty much a rudimentary check of this, I would be able to wipe in a huge amount of these problems away. But until we get to that point, because that would then work, walk like uh, that would go against with a whole global yeah, i think we're going to get there in a yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a whole global push mm. uh, it was quite quite interesting i interviewed katie holmes uh, kate holmes i should say who um who has experience from all over the world and she was definitely pushing that it's not like australia's kind of leading the way but it's a whole global push and i would like to see it go the other way I, th- I think we can probably strip out a bunch of rules and regulations because 
we're no longer receiving commissions in super and insurance products. Um, although if we, although LICs have, uh, have somehow managed to scrape back in over the last few years, but we'll see what happens there. Uh, but I think removing the core problems is the best way to tackle this. Alas, I'm probably a, a one man on an island, um, and uh, and ASIC certainly aren't going to listen to me. So uh, they've chosen to go down this path of more rules and regulations, um, which kind of brings us to where you were looking to to kick off a practice, and and we sort of sat down a fair few years ago, and you said. Hey, this is the, this whole business model that I want to build off um, the way that things work, and we were like, "Yeah, wow! Like this is, um, you know, this has got some legs." Um, you and Patty ended up going further and further, deeper into this. Came across a bunch of problems, right? From what I could tell, um, and then during this whole process, uh, let's call it Patty's penchant for. Uh, you know, diving into the micro problems mm. sort of ended up producing a situation where you guys were spending, you know, a lot of time on this front end piece mm. um, of trying to avoid compliance problems uh, that you went, oh, well, bugger it, we're just going to use this whole system and build it so that other advisors can use it, um, which ultimately ended up becoming advice revolution. Am I right in saying that was kind of the premise? Yeah. Look, I, I, I was coming at it from a business model and a business efficiency standpoint and how standardizing the inputs to the back office would transform the ability for the business to grow um, and take more away from the advisor. And Adrian was countering that really beautifully with how do I as an advisor have a tool that makes my life easy so I can maintain all my focus on the client and if anything, that can contribute to helping me to um, deliver that client experience and engage my client in different ways. Um, and yeah, technology, when you start down that journey, it, it takes a lot longer and costs a lot more than you ever expect, right? And so as you got deeper and deeper into this, we had to make some calls around, well, what are we here? Um, and you see a number of practices in the industry that have invested incredible amounts of time and heart and money um, in in building their own solutions in their practice. And um, there's no doubt that there's a huge chunk of the industry that's waiting for this stuff to be delivered off the shelf. Um, and, and my belief is as those solutions come through over the next couple of years, logic would suggest that they're going to surpass what 99% of businesses would ever be able to do themselves if they were building it in-house just by nature of um, the way you'd be thinking about it as a product, the resources you could pump into it as a product, um, the flexibility that you naturally need to de- design as a product. So yeah, there's, there's definitely plenty of practices that are in that middle ground where we were and, and we just made the hard decisions somewhere along the line to jump off the entrepreneurial ledge and try to turn this thing into a product and, and really close a gap that um, hadn't been addressed very well in the market. And by nature of you know, the winds that have blown through the industry over the last couple of years, particularly post-Royal Commission, it's just it's made this uh, a greater and greater pain point in the industry and a greater and greater opportunity for us um, with what we're doing. Do you see um, the, the world of financial planning, I feel like, is getting smaller and smaller, and there's a lot of companies now with a bit more of a global mandate. 
um, XY, we're in the early stages um, of focusing on, you know, f- the way that I see it is 50% of advice is location-dependent compliance rules and regulations and 50% sort of universal. We've had this conversation over a beer, I remember. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, <clears throat> with that 50% of the rules and regulations, mm. with Australia being the leading country, right, in terms of going through this process, do you think that what you do will be transferable across the world? To other advisors, to other uh, jurisdictions. Yeah, I, I suck at that word, yeah. jurisdictions. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Um, the front-end space is relatively generic to arguably even industry um, or um, country-specific regulation or tax rules or whatever. So um, the further you are up the front, the more generic you are to adapt to other adjacent industries that are also staring down the barrel of fiduciary duty um, or other countries um, in terms of the financial advice market that are going to have equally, if if you go through fiduciary duty, you would assume that there's always going to be this explosion of wanting to understand everything from that conversation and the documentation of what occurs. And so absolutely it's a... It's solving a problem that they haven't yet fully experienced, but all of the other practical things that an advisor needs in that front-end space and all of the solutions that they might want in the client engagement space to explore goals with clients or values with clients or whatever it might be, these things are generic. They've got nothing to do with the country. This, it's, a human, it's a human thing. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely opportunity there for sure. So one of the things... Uh, I like to ask people is, so basically you're bullish on human-to-human, face-to-face advice. Absolutely. I think I listened to your, was it Dean Gilkinson? I think your podcast recently, you expressed that yourself. Absolutely bullish on it. Um, I think the industry is going to go through change. It's obviously already shrinking, but when you look at the people and the businesses that are exiting, uh, is this just a lot of the legacy that's just trimming off? How much of the true productive capacity of quality advice is actually going i think is is unknown at this point but in the main i think the the smaller businesses the more legacy based businesses sitting back on large chunks of grandfather revenue these businesses weren't delivering a lot of advice to a lot of australians as well so um, there's a short-term pain but i absolutely believe in face-to-face advice i think the technology will support humans not remove humans from that process which means it'll just further and further help to bring the cost of advice back down to a reasonable level Um, it will help the humans to um, engage their clients in better ways it will it will stop businesses investing incredible amounts of time and building things into their business that every other business is trying to build whether that's at a process level or whether that's at a how am I engaging my clients and creating this experience, right? The amount of, um, when I was in charter, the one thing that I did very, very, very well at that time as a partnership manager was bring in startup businesses. I had a phenomenal startup offer. Um, I had great relationships in the industry um, and I, I was bringing in far, far more startups than any other person in, in that business. And I watched all of these businesses go through this same process of having to build out processes and structures and systems and documentation and how am I engaging my clients how am I extracting what's important of them 
all of this f- phenomenal brain power being oh, effort. put in. You absolutely. did it, right? Oh, you yeah, did it yourself, absolutely. right? Think about that effort in starting a business. Yeah, it's crazy. If you had better off-the-shelf solutions and in a world where things are more, you know, integrated rather than, you know, your large one-off solution that tries to do everything but maybe doesn't always do everything very well, imagine the resource drain that that would avoid. Imagine how much quicker and easier it would be to start up your own practice and deliver great advice to your clients, let alone scale a business. So that's another thing. And, and, and we, we went on that same journey ourselves, right? Like the reason I, I approached Adrian in the first place is because he's just, his ability with technology is pretty amazing, right? And so I knew that I didn't want to just build this stuff. I wanted to build it with tech. So it was, you know, the infrastructure was there and scalable and, that was a smart decision, but the amount of time and energy we spent, we just we ended up actually opting out of being in advice practice at all because that, that's how much was involved. So these sort of solutions have the ability to take that weight away from any other business that starts in the industry. And hopefully once we go through this transition period, that's there's some of the things that will help the industry grow again and help people, yeah, to, to launch new businesses and, and scale that. It's interesting, I, I sort of sat down and thought about this once for a, a fair chunk of time. What's As you sa- do. I <laughs> <laughs> have to do like to ponder. Um, but SaaS, right? So software as a service. And I was thinking like, what does that mean, right? Because all software is a service. I mean, Word, Microsoft Word, the service of being able to type onto from my keyboard to the computer solves me having to um, dictate to someone, uh, you know, writing a journal, right? Or, or, or so it's a it's a service that I've replaced rather than paying for an employee to do a certain job. I'm using technology to simplify what it is that I'm trying to do to get the same outcome. That's what SaaS is, and and then and then so like an a, a CRM or an email um an, an an email campaign manager, what's that 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 is attempting to replace a, a, a an extra marketing person in your company who has to constantly you know go through the rolodex and pull out the people that you want to contact and then put together a, a campaign. It, but rather it is using technology to uh, consolidate all the people that you want to talk to on a particular subject and then you're paying for this piece of software to do a service for you. So it's SaaS is even, I, I think is like even a bad name. It should be like software instead of an employee. Yeah, but remember, that's not how you bought tech in the old days, right? You paid up front and then you owned the you yeah, that license. No, so uh, it's actually it's it's it, it, per, 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 perhaps um it the revenue model for them's changed a little. Yes, but but the purpose of it, like I, I just never really understood what software as a service meant. Like, what's the difference between like mm. what software isn't a service, and and then what service is it? Right, it's instead of it's the revenue model. It's instead of an employee. So, oh, so you're saying that SaaS probably represents more the revenue model to them rather than, 
I think that's it, mate. Okay. Well, that explains a lot. That's my assumption. <laughs> if it's not, I'm um, doing this out on the air, so this is not a great place What's to be wrong, but that's my assumption. <laughs> no, no, fair enough. But, <laughs> but then, um, so something like um, what you, you've done is you're trying to replace an employee in the business from, you know, all the effort and time focus that goes into creating all of these upfront logistical problems to solve uh, and trying to automate it. So, it's uh, mm. it's a, it's another employee in the company that is doing a certain job. Well, no, I think we're, we're removing the upfront effort for the business to build these processes themselves. That's what I mean. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and often that's in, in a small business, that's, that's the owners, that's the advisors, they're, the, they're everything, right? So, absolutely. But again, I, I think of technology as supporting people, not taking the jobs away. So, how do you help that business move through that growth cycle faster? How do you help the advisors spend less time with their clients? How do you help the back office get through the, the back office work in a faster way with less errors without... Well, how, how long does it take to create an SOA these days? That's a great question. So in the in the institutional environment, the time to deliver advice to a new client yes. has doubled in two years, if not more. So we're talking a practice time increase of 100%. Right. Where a third of that might be increase in advisor time, but the back office times are just blowing out crazily. So we're talking like on average around 50 hours to deliver advice to a new client. Is this why a lot of advisors are just not taking on new clients at the moment? Oh, absolutely. And ongoing service requirements yep. and all the other things, trying to upsell their existing grandfather clients if they can. But yeah, capacity is a massive constraint. Yeah, I'm seeing that a lot. Think, yep. And I think, you know, again, if I, if I think about the institutional environment, it's the frustration of delivering advice to, to their clients in that compliance regime that blows out that efficiency one arguably it's a safer environment arguably um but it's less efficient um and then two that that business challenge that's also less efficient but um if you if delivering advice to your clients is 75 80 percent of the cost of running your business and that's increased by nature of the compliance environment you find yourself in then people are questioning that and so that's not the only consideration, obviously, in terms of who your business partner is. But um, I think that's a big part of why we're seeing this transition away from the larger institutions, um, arguably more than the brand damage that's been done. I think it's the practical challenges of running a business is my personal sense, but I'm sure it's, you know, it's, it's unique to every business for sure. hundred um, percent. Mate, it's really interesting to... Uh, go through a bit of your journey and then um, I think you've got a pretty cool insight considering your experience. Uh, if there's any advisors out there that do want to say, Sean, what's going on in your world? How would they find you? Sure. Thank you. Um, absolutely reach out via LinkedIn or you can jump onto our website, adviserevolution.com.au. Um, happy to run demonstrations of the product. Um, yeah, really looking forward to spending more time in the industry and um, – yeah, running 100% at getting this product into market. Look, congrats, man. It's been awesome to see your journey so far. So all the success. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.